This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Stream. Go to getstream.io slash widgets to learn more. Hi, thanks for listening. This is the It's So Widgets Flutter podcast. My name is Hello Korn. Each episode, get a chance to speak with another amazing member of the Flutter community. This episode, we are extremely lucky to speak with Bob. Welcome. Howdy. How's it going? Good. Thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. This is cool. This is really an honor and privilege. I'm a big fan of yours. I learned a tremendous amount from your, your videos, from your articles. And then I also just really appreciate the tremendous effort you've put into the Dart language. I know as a creator, I'm sure part of you is in it uh, and would benefit tremendously uh, from what you've created. Uh, so th- uh-huh. on behalf of the community, thank you very, very much. Thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, it, it definitely helps that Google pays me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Cool. So I'd love to hear your background. So start, how'd you get into programming? How did I get into programming? Um... I started learning to program when I was 10. Uh, Around the same time, I was put in a class in elementary school where I had time in a resource room that had a bunch of TRS-80s in it that no one knew how to use. Um, And my teacher got a printout of some basic programs, and he gave it to me and my friend, and we would tinker around with that. And then around the same time, my stepdad got an Apple IIe, so I had an Apple IIe at home that I could start tinkering around on. So BASIC was my first programming language. Um, I learned from that, which is a, a super different time to be learning, right? Learning to program before the web was weird. You know, it's like I would go to Walden Books and look for any programming books. And if I found one on BASIC, then it was like, oh, finally, I could actually learn something. And it was a, it was a real difficult uphill battle. Uh, and it's such value, I find, in learning from books where you learn stuff you don't even know you're looking for. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, I still love books because I, because uh, I'm finishing my second one now. Um, but I still read a lot of programming books too, and I still think they're just as fantastic and useful now that we have the web because there's there's really something to be said for just an author putting time into organizing a deep body of material in a linear way. Right. And that's something that like, you know, you just don't get from the web. Um, so I still, I still think books are fantastic. I think they're underrated these days. Definitely. Definitely agreed. So how'd you end up at Google? What was the story from starting a basic to right, the <laughs> biggest companies in the world? Oh man. Uh, so my career path makes absolutely no sense. Uh, there's, there's no logic or structure to it. Um, I was, I don't want to give you the super long, I don't, I don't think anyone in the world needs my entire life story. The story about how I got the job at Google is kind of funny though. Um, so before I was at Google, I was a game programmer at EA living in Orlando. And I'd been at EA for, um, for eight years, which is a long time to be in the, in the game industry and a really long time to be at EA. Um, there was a lot of overtime in there. There was a lot of grind. Um, and I was, I was pretty burned out. And I found myself in this ironic situation where um, at the time I wasn't doing actual game programming. I was working on like a, some shared technology stuff. I was doing like telemetry analysis, you know, things that didn't feel like making games. Um, and my employment contract said that, you know, basically when you work for EA or most game companies, they kind of own your brain, right? So you can't really do games on your free time. So... I was going to work, not doing games, and then going home and not doing games. And that felt really weird. They're like, oh, yeah, I got into the game industry, and now I can't make any games. Uh, And I was feeling bitter and burned out about it. So I created a throwaway account on Reddit to to vent. (laughs) And I wrote, you know, I posted just saying how... uh, 
how pissed off I was that uh, I was a game programmer that couldn't do any game stuff. And I got a reply from a complete stranger who was like, well, you know, if you know C++, Google's hiring, I'll put in a referral for you. And I was like, really? Um, so it's like, all right, sure. Yeah, why not? Um, and at that time, um, my wife and I were in the middle of trying to figure out how to move to Seattle. Um, and my plan was to try to get a new job at a game company out here in Seattle um, because there are a lot of game companies here. And I had an interview lined up. So when I was out there for that, Google was like, well, you know, while you're here, we'll definitely get an interview lined up. Um, and I, <laughs> I bombed the interview with the game company, uh, but somehow managed to uh, sneak my way in the door at Google. So then I was like, oh, I guess, I guess I'm guess i not going to be a game programmer anymore. Nice. It's, it's such an interesting story, right? You think nobody kind of makes games these days. It's really just indie developers who get to kind of see the full picture and really make games. Where these large companies, it's just so subdivided that you're... It's right. It's hard to be a real game creator. You're just uh, kind of a cog yeah. in, the wheel in some senses. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. You know, the scale that um, the EA and the other big game companies work is like, you know, it's a lot like the film industry, right? Where you've got, you know, 100 people working on a project in very specialized roles. And, you know, it can be really difficult to feel like you have any uh, significant influence on what you end up making. I used to work at a startup, and that startup got bigger. I used to say my job got smaller, just more, mm-hmm. more layers of bureaucracy. Yeah, totally. I was going to say the last game that I worked on at EA when I was on a game team was a game for the Nintendo DS called Henry Hatsworth. And that was like a really small 2D game with just like five or six people on the team. And it was like a fantastic experience, right? Because it was such a small team. And then all the stuff I'd done before that was like, you know, totally different. I'd worked on Madden and kind of other bigger games of that scale. And it was just, you know, it was also cool. It's cool working on a big thing, um, but different, you know. Nice. So at Google, when, when was this? Is this because you've been with the Dart team a long time? Yeah. So this was uh, 2010, I think. Um, Dart was not my starter project. I was put on. Um, I think they kind of didn't really know what to do with me. I have a, a UI design and programming background, so they put me on a a project um, that I think eventually became Google Hangouts. So like you know, video chat. Um, so I was doing JavaScript programming, working on the front end of that, um, which was not not a super great fit for me. It was, you know, it was interesting getting to see what it's like writing JavaScript at scale, um, and that kind of, you know, highly motivated me to <laughs> to want Dart to succeed. Um, but it wasn't a super great fit for the for you know what I was interested in. And right around that time was when I started getting really interested in programming languages and compilers, and I sort of uh, finagled my way onto the the Dart team as it was ramping up. Very cool. And so your role at Dart team has changed over the years. Um, mm-hmm. At this point, right, how would you describe your role? So these days, I'm basically full-time on the language itself. So, <clears throat> you know, when we talk about the Dart team, there's, I don't even know how many people are on the Dart team, 40-ish, somewhere in that rough ballpark of people that are, that describe themselves as being on the Dart team. And that includes, you know, the VM, um, you know, the Dart to JavaScript compiler, uh, DDC, which is the sort of development web compiler, um, core libraries, packages, stuff like that, a bunch of different people. Um, and then within that, we have a smaller team that is the language team. And there's five of us. And we are the ones who it's basically our responsibility to figure out what new language features we're going to add, what language changes we're going to make, what sort of bugs in the language itself we're going to try to fix. Um, and I've been peripheral to that team for a long time. Um, but these days, I'm basically on that team working full-time, just 
doing language stuff. So the the, <laughs> the language that I have written the most in uh, in the past couple of years is Markdown, <laughs> for better or worse. I can see that. A lot of specifications, I'm sure. Yeah, it's just a whole lot of proposals, specifications, bug reports, that kind of stuff. So I mean, one of the big changes recently is null safety, mm-hmm. which I'm sure is something you've been thinking about or planning for a long time. As exceedingly close to my heart. The, the issue itself, was is it go back to 2013 or close to that? Uh, so I wrote a blog post in 2011 wow. when I was not part of the language team. I was on the Dart team, but I wasn't working on the language. And I wrote a blog post saying, like, I think we should add null safety to Dart. Um, and the language team at the time was like, uh, no, not interested. <laughs> That'll never happen. <laughs> uh, um, but I'm <laughs> apparently very patient. Um, so, you know, at the time, you know, when Dart first started, um, in the, the initial language designers, their goal was to bring as many JavaScript programmers to Dart as possible. And they felt at the time that to be approachable to JavaScript programmers, they needed the language needed to be as kind of lightweight and dynamic and script-like as possible, right? Like a really minimal type system that doesn't get in your way. Um, and, you know, at the time that Dart was initially designed, this has been like, you know, Clojure and CoffeeScript were really big. And they're, you know, the sort of the pendulum of language taste was was sort of swinging towards dynamic languages. Um, but as, you know, around the time Dart shipped, that pendulum kind of started swinging back the other direction. And, and you know, people wanted more and more static types and they wanted more of Dart static type systems. So, um, and as our internal usage grew, you know, we had people writing bigger and bigger Dart programs where, you know, having a richer static type system really does help. Um, over time, the desire for null safety kind of increased and increased and increased. Um, and eventually uh, became a little more persuasive to the, to the old language team. Um, I think around um, 20, 2014-ish, um, Patrice Shalin, Shalin, I don't know how his last name is pronounced, wrote a really, really fantastic detailed proposal for how to add null safety to Dart in a non-breaking way. Um, he called his proposal non-nullable by default or NNBD, and that ended up becoming like how we refer to the feature internally. Um, so he wrote this really nice proposal that got the attention of the old language team and um, it sort of took an interest on it, but it was it's still a really big change and you know, they didn't feel that we could put time into it. Um, and it kind of sat there for a few years. And then I think only in 2018 ish did, you know, there was, you know, a bunch of changes in the language team. Uh, Lars Bach left the team, Casper Lund left, uh, Galad Braca left. And around the time that there was sort of language team turnover, um, we decided to give it a go. We're like, yeah, we're going to see if we can pull off this null safety thing. Um, and then Leif Peterson, who's, uh, who's the lead of the language team now, um, kind of took Patrice's proposal and, you know, did the sort of all the detailed type system work and all, you know, went through and, you know, with the rest of the team kind of figured out all the grungy edge cases and put together a proposal for like, you know, here's how we could do it in a way that allows incremental migration so that you can have a program that contains both null safe code and null unsafe code which we felt was necessary in order to be able to get the world onto null safety. And then, uh, you know, we just spent a couple of years figuring out every corner of the language that gets impacted by it, you know, implementing it, having implementation teams build it out, um, migrating all of the core libraries, packages, tests, um, 
I was just like, it was just a, a mountain, an insane mountain of work. Um, but, but we did it. It's done. We shipped it. Um, and it's pretty crazy to think about, right? Like this is, you know, it's, it's fairly rare for programming languages to make significant changes to their static type system after 1.0. Um, you know, it's easy for relatively easy for a language to add new syntactic features, you know, maybe add new runtime semantics. Right. But the, you know, the static type system, the user interface for that is compile errors. So it's really hard to change your static type system in a way that doesn't break existing user programs and people don't want that. Um, so a lot of times, you know, the, the type system you start with is the type system you're stuck with indefinitely. Um, but because Leaf came up with a design that does support kind of a legacy mode and interacting with, you know, having mixed mode programs, um, we were able to not just change the type system, but change it to a stricter type system without breaking users and giving them a way to get onto that new type system that was, you know, as pain-free as we could make it. Um, which is a really, you know, unusual thing to do. It's super uh, costly in terms of resources to, you know, to change your language's type system like that. It would be, you know, it would have been great if we had a time machine and could have done it on day one. It would have been a lot more economical. Um, but I think it's really cool that, you know, that we managed to do it. And the feedback we've gotten so far from users is that uh, that they like it. They feel good about the way their code works with null safety. Um, they feel better about it. It's cool that we're starting to get some performance benefits from it. So it's been pretty fun, but... Man, it was a lot of work. Congratulations. Uh, it's, it's incredibly impressive that you guys pulled it off as well as you did. Uh, Thanks. From, from my perspective in the community, it, it was always clear that that was kind of the one feature Kotlin developers would always say, clearly, you know, it's the delineator, right? It's the feature Dart mm-hmm. doesn't have. So just simply uh, aligning those languages, I think, is, is really impressive and important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely with, you know, with the rise of Kotlin and Swift, you know, it it's almost like the choice to do this got taken from our hands. Like the users demanded it. The other languages in our space have it. Um, you know, it's personally frustrating for me because I've wanted us to have null safety from before Kotlin existed. And I remember talking to the oldest language team being like, hey, this would be a really cool differentiating feature for Dart. We can have this thing that no other language has. And by the time we actually shipped it, it's sort of a catch-up feature, which is a little bit of a bummer. But, um, but you know, I'm glad that we have caught up in this way. And I actually think it's really cool the that the type system we came up with, you know, in a lot of ways, it is kind of a a sort of a table stakes or a me too feature at this point. Um, But we did kind of take it farther than other languages in some ways. So the type system that we have is actually sound, um, which means we can use nullability in the type system for compiler optimizations, which, um, which most other languages that have null safety can't do because there are, there end up being a couple of soundness holes in the way they've designed it. Nice. That's an excellent point. And again, just so impressive. Just the, uh, the, I think the hardest part probably wasn't the implementation itself, but the transition of the community. And that's somewhere where yeah. I think you guys re- really are succeeding. Uh, I will point out the one package we're waiting on is Flutter Charts. That one seems to be left behind. Hopefully, <laughs> I have, that name has come up before. Yeah, um, that's, that's the one on our list. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a bunch. I'm um, sure, I'm, I'm sure. And it's just a matter of time. I think it's just time. Yeah. There'll be just, it's just a dam and there's pressure and things will push through if enough people are kind of uh, make noise about things. Uh, nice. So big picture. Uh, Dart, now you've got null safety. What comes next? And you talked about uh, metaprogramming, which is really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what's what's interesting for us is, um, you know, for the past, I don't know, four years or so, anytime I talk to, you know, people doing client application development um, about Dart, you know, they're, they're saying, well, you know, I want extension methods. I want 
non-nullable types and I want data classes. And so, you know, we've been in this mode of like, okay, well, we just have to catch up to Swift and Kotlin. Um, and a few years ago, we shipped extension methods and now we shipped null safety. So the main thing that people are clamoring, clamoring for all the time is data classes, which is a relatively small feature. Um, so we're starting to get to the point with Dart where it feels like we've kind of caught up and that's a really interesting space for us on the language team to be in because now we can start to think about like, okay, well, what do we want to do to stand out? What do we want to do that's going to make us an, an interesting language in a positive way instead of just feeling like, you know, maybe we're missing something. Um, and our pitch right now is uh, to take a, a real stab at doing static metaprogramming, um, which uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much that means to uh, most listeners, Um but if you'd like, I can try to give like a, a super science summary, rough introduction. So metaprogramming, which is a funny word, um, basically means, you know, meta, the meta prefix always means uh, sort of a higher order or a level above. So um, so metaprogramming is uh, writing code that modifies other code, right? So if you've used, uh, you know, the C preprocessor to write macros, uh, you've done metaprogramming, right? Because those macros end up producing C code. If you've done, uh, if you've used reflection in Java, or um, you know, iterated over the fields of a prototype in JavaScript, you've done metaprogramming at runtime, right? Because now you're writing code that is uh, looking at the runtime representation of objects and uh, and code and mutating it, right? Uh, so metaprogramming is really cool in that it can. Um, sure, I think of a good way to summarize it. Um, so taking a step back, <clears throat> a big part of what we do when we program is we introduce abstractions to get rid of redundancy, right? So I my first programming language was BASIC, and BASIC had subroutines, but it didn't have functions, right? It didn't have functions that took parameters. So when you write BASIC code, you end up kind of essentially copying a lot, copy-pasting a lot of code because there isn't a way to sort of parameterize stuff easily. I mean, you can kind of use variables, but it's hokey. So we like languages that have functions with parameters because then you can take a piece of code, hoist it out to a function, and instead of having to copy and paste that code in 10 different places, you can just call it, right? Pass different, different arguments. Um, so a whole lot of what a programming language design is, is offering those kind of abstraction facilities to let you reuse code in interesting ways and to avoid redundancy, right? So um, the language itself has a bunch of those facilities. Functions are a big part of it. Classes and inheritance are another uh, aspect of it. Um, but it only gets you so far, right? Uh, there's stuff that you can't do with functions, right? Like if you, um, you know, you can't... Uh, implement your own control flow as a function, right? Because the, the language semantics say that all the arguments are going to be evaluated before the function even gets called. So the function doesn't have any control over that unless you're using a language that is specifically designed around that. Um, and in a language like Dart, where the top level of the program is declarative, not imperative code. So things like class declarations and function declarations, those are not like statements that are executed. Um, you don't really have any programmability over them, right? Like, um, you know, a concrete example is uh, in Flutter, you know, a lot of times you define a stateful widget class and a state class, and you define these pair of classes and the code that creates, you know, the code in the stateful widget that creates the state is kind of boilerplate -y, right? It's like it, it's a create state method that always, you know, calls the state constructor, passes in some fields, 
the constructor on the state class is like pretty boilerplate, right? All it does is take those parameters, store them in some fields, right? Um, but because that's happening at the declarative level of your code, you can't write a function that produces that for you, right? Like the declarative structure of your program in Dart is not programmable. You don't have any abstraction facilities there. Um, so with static metaprogramming, what we're looking at then is giving you some tools to program at the declarative or at the static level of a Dart program. We're trying to give you the ability to um, write some Dart code that might produce a class or produce an implementation of a method. Um, I don't know if that make, makes sense. It's, I understand that sounds high level and weird and hand wavy, but uh, but that's kind of the general goal. You know, when we look at users' programs and we look at how they're using frameworks and we look at you know the the code that they spend time writing that doesn't feel very interesting, that doesn't feel super related to their domain. Um, a lot of it is that kind of method level boilerplate, right? You know, if you want to, um, you know, if you want to write, if you want to make your class serializable to JSON, that's easy to do, right? You just like write a function that like produces a map of stuff, but it's super boring to do, right? Like it feels like it should be automatable, um, but the language doesn't give you tools to automate it. So with static metaprogramming, what we're looking at is, well, okay, well, what are the language features we need to add so that a library or a framework could let you automate at that level? Um, so that's what we're working on these days, uh, which is super exciting because like, you know, the, the other languages in our space don't have a lot at that level. Um, you know, there are other languages, you know, Scala has macros, which are pretty interesting. A lot of the dynamic languages have pretty interesting runtime reflection, um, but statically typed languages with interesting static metaprogramming are fairly uncommon, right? Rust has macros, um, Scala does, but there's not a, there's not a ton there. Um, so this could be a really cool sort of interesting differentiator for us if we pull it off. Um, but it's also really difficult. It's a open-ended design space. Um, it's tricky, uh, gets complicated, gets confusing very quickly. Um, so it's a real challenge for us too, but it's, uh, it's exciting to be working on. Good luck. Uh, you, you have my full confidence. Thanks. And then, you know, so uh, to circle back, you know, the, the one other feature that everyone, every time I talk to an Android developer, they tell me they want is data classes. And our goal is that if we do static metaprogramming right, if we make it expressive enough, the hope is that a user could write a data class library. They could write a library of their own Dart code that essentially adds data classes to the language that gives you something that looks pretty much like data class syntax. And then, you know, they're through static metaprogramming, you know, it will implement the equality method or the copy with method um, automatically. So that's, that's the pitch. You know, my hope is that if, uh, if we do static metaprogramming right, then a lot of other language feature requests from users, instead of becoming language feature requests, just become packages that they can implement themselves, which now that I hear myself say that, it sounds like I'm trying to put myself out of a job. <laughs> Hopefully I don't do that. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it's, it's extremely exciting. Uh, I think these are the best solutions for these building blocks you provide. They can be put together in different ways and with flexible and configurable solutions. Uh, it's exciting. Yeah. The languages that I love the most are always the ones that provide a lot of power to library and framework authors. You know, I like languages that feel extensible and programmable in that way. Um, and I know there's, you know, the, the counter argument is, you know, it, languages like that make it really easy to shoot yourself in the foot. You know, like you can write C++ code that makes you want to die inside. Um, 
But I don't know, like you can also just not do that. And you can you can write code in those languages that's really powerful and expressive and beautiful. And I, I think languages that sort of trust users in that way are, are fun to use. So you've been incredibly productive. So along with Shipping Null Safety, you've also written a new book. I Yeah, I did. I did. I finished my book. Um, I wouldn't say that I've been incredibly productive because it's taken six years. <laughs> I've been... I've been moderately productive over an accumulated large amount of time. Um, the book is called Crafting Interpreters, and it's a uh, <laughs> my initial pitch was that it was going to be a handbook on um, implementing programming languages. Uh, it turned out to be more like a doorstop textbook on implementing programming languages. It, it was a lot bigger than I anticipated. Um, but yeah, so it's basically kind of a, a sort of first introduction to um, kind of the theory behind programming languages, you know, parsers, stuff like that, concepts, you know, basic concepts around programming language implementation, but then also a super hands-on walkthrough of what it means to actually build an interpreter from scratch. Um, and it walks through uh, two complete implementations of the same language. So it implements it once in Java in a pretty simple way, and then it goes back and implements it again in C using a stack-based bytecode VM Um and, uh, yeah, and it, you know, the, the sort of the conceit of the language of the book is that, um, you know, programming languages have a sort of intimidating reputation. Um, and I wanted to kind of dispel that magic by showing that it's like, yeah, you know, an interpreter is just a program, right? It's just text files, right? Like if you can write code, you can write an interpreter. Um, so it kind of walks you through every single line of code in these interpreters, specifically because that is the kind of conceit to show you that there's no magic, there's no secrets, there's nothing hiding, right? Um, and then uh, by the time you're done, you have you know you have a, a pretty efficient uh, working interpreter for a fairly full featured language. So the language uh, it implements is this language I made up called Locks. Um, it's kind of JavaScript esque. It's basically a dynamically typed single dispatch object-oriented language. So it has, you know, fairly rich syntax, it's got functions, classes, inheritance, closures. Um, so you, you know, you get, you cover most of the difficult stuff, it has garbage collection, you implement a garbage collector. Um, as I hear myself describing that, uh, it is clearly a large book and I don't know how I ever thought it was going to be anything but. Um, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's done. I finished writing the last chapter um, last year, a couple months into the lockdown, the way I've written the book is every time I finish a chapter, I put it online and the entire book is online at craftinginterpreters.com. Um, so you can read the whole thing right now if you want. Um, but then I am also putting together uh, a print edition that I'm going to sell. So I've spent, since I finished the last chapter, I've been working on the print edition. So I, uh, hired a, a copy editor to do a copy editing pass. I've done another copy editing pass. I spent several months typesetting it in InDesign, which has been a interesting experience. And now I'm close to the finish line. I'm looking right. I have the proof copy of it on my desk and I'm going through and proofreading it right now. Um, and then when that's done, I'll put together the EPUB versions and the PDF. And then hopefully pretty soon it'll be available for sale and I can, I can finally be done with this <laughs> extremely time consuming project. Uh, the book sounds incredible. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, I'm one of those who sometimes refers to technology as magic, and I find it's a terrible practice because when things don't work, you're kind of helpless, right? If it is magic, mm -hmm. then there's no, no rationality about it. You start, right. you know, doing these weird, like, you turn around three times, turn off the lights three times, and you hope it works. <laughs> yeah. it's, it gets dangerous. And I think, yeah. and, and, and this in particular, 
I'm very much a lot self-taught. I, you know, I, I know very little about you know real programming, uh, and I have no clue how we would write uh, interpreter or a language. And I would love to have a better understanding. Yeah, well, you know, have, have I got the book for you? You know, strangely enough, too, like I'm self-taught as well. Like I, uh, I got into programming languages as a hobbyist, um, you know, about a year or so before joining the Dart team. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm a college dropout. I never took a compiler's class or anything. Everything I know about this stuff, I learned from you know, random stuff I found on the web or, uh, you know, I, you know, sort of worked my way through a bunch of, uh, compilers and programming language books. That's great to hear. It's amazing. It really inspiring people who maybe, you know, didn't study in school. There's really no limit to what you can accomplish. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm self-taught and never became a great programmer, but clearly you can be self-taught. I'd become an amazing program. Uh, I, I mean, for all, for all we know, you could be a great programmer. Maybe you are, maybe you just uh, we all, I think we all have some sense, some level of imposter syndrome. My, my major was sociology. <laughs> it didn't necessarily prepare me. Oh, interesting. My, my minor in college was sociology and yeah. I, I loved it. I found it way more fascinating than most of my computer science classes. I don't know if that's just because sociology professors by nature are better at dealing with groups of people and are better teachers or what, but. Uh, it is interesting, but uh, <laughs> not necessarily well prepared for programming. Uh, so unrelated programming, I follow you on Twitter and I know you're into music and synths. Uh, I'd be curious, yeah, how I got into it and how involved I am. Yeah, that's my that's my my new slash old hobby. Um, so uh, yeah, so <laughs> depends on how long of the answer you want here. Uh, the the shortest answer is that getting back into making music has been my sort of you know my pandemic lockdown hobby, um, and it's been good for that. It's been nice to just like you know make some music when I'm stuck at the house. Um, the slightly longer story is that, uh, a few years ago, I kind of turned 40 and sort of hit my midlife crisis and kind of felt like I was like wasting my time and missing the experiences of my youth. And it was either, you know, get a Corvette or a sailboat or get back into making music. And, you know, synthesizers are cheaper than (laughs) Corvettes and sailboats. Uh, so I was like, yeah, I'll get back into making music. I'd been, um, I'd made electronic music way back in my college days using a, a mod tracker called player pro on the Mac. Um, and then in my twenties, I had been in a couple of rock bands. So I was a bassist in a couple of indie rock bands, did that for a while, which is super fun. Really, really just fantastic experience. I don't know. Do you, do you play anything? Also the bass, I play electric bass. Yeah. Have you been in bands before? Uh, I have. I, I play in a band now. I've always played in bands. I've, I've always believed as a musician, you don't really become a t- real musician until you've played in a band. I find no matter how good you are on your own, it's really that process of learning to play real time, interact with the musicians and uh, complimenting what they're doing and listening to what they're doing. I've always found until I really start to enjoy my first band, I was a, a real musician. And that was mm-hmm. kind of what changed it in my, in my mind. Yeah, that that experience of making a one harmonious sound with other people is just just one of the greatest things you can experience as a human, right? Um, so being in a so back then being in a band was great. You know, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, but once I had kids and then moved to Washington, you know, my schedule and lifestyle was not conducive to being in a band. Um, so uh, so yeah, a couple of years ago, I realized that I, you know, I really missed having music be a part of my life. Um, but you know, I was also writing a book and, you know, have wife and kids and I don't 
you know, I don't even know people here in Seattle that do music stuff. So, you know, actually joining a band, you know, wouldn't fit into my schedule, but I was like, well, I can, you know, I can make electronic music. And that's, that's a lot of the music that I love. Uh, and it's almost all that I listen to these days because now, especially when I'm working from home, almost all of my music listening is while I'm working. And so for that, I kind of want something that's, that's not vocal, you know? Uh, so yeah, so a couple of years ago, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to try to get back into making music on my own. It's not as rewarding as, you know, doing it with a band and doing it live in some ways, you know, it doesn't feel as, um, it doesn't feel as sort of present. Uh, but it's still really fun to kind of just like sit down and, you know, not do something that's kind of left brainy, like programming or writing, um, and just kind of make a sound. It's been really satisfying. It's a little tricky, uh, you know, getting back into making electronic music because the main way people make electronic music these days is on a computer. Um, and the last thing I need in my life is more time staring at a screen. <laughs> so, so that's, that's a little tricky. So I'm, you know, I spend about half my time doing music in Ableton live using like soft sense. Um, and that's fine, but it's not, the process is not super fun. Um, so I've also been kind of getting back into, uh, hardware synthesizers and drum machines and stuff like that. Um, just so that I can have something that feels like a more immediate tactile experience and something that's not just, you know, staring at a screen and clicking a mouse. Um, and that's been super fun. Uh, is an easy way to like burn a lot of money too, but, uh, um, you know, not spending money on anything else right now because we're stuck in the house anyway. So, so why not, why not get a drum machine? Necessary. You need it. <laughs> That's right. Necessary. Yes. yes. It's for it's it's my emotional gear. support drum machine. <laughs> yes. Is that, do you share music? I think available online people listen to. I do. Uh, so I'm, I put stuff on um, YouTube and SoundCloud, although it's these days, it seems like SoundCloud is mostly dead. Um, so I mainly put stuff on YouTube. If you look for tiny wires, that is my, my artist name, my alter ego. Um, and I've got some stuff up there and it's been fun. It's nice to kind of, you know, I, I don't think anything I've put online is like particularly amazing. I don't think I'm changing anyone's life or anything, but uh, it does feel good to put stuff out there. You know, it feels nice to share stuff with other people. I'm kind of wired to, uh, um, to just need to create stuff and put it out there in order to feel good. So, uh, the book is great for that, but the timeline for the book is pretty long. So it's nice to have something a little more immediate that I can share with the world. That's great to hear. I, mean, I, I believe very strongly that we all need to make music, that we've very quickly changed society where 100 years ago, you had to make music to hear it. Right Before recorded music, everyone made music. And now we very quickly switched to a society where you kind of think you have to be perfect or American Idol makes you believe you have to sing perfectly to sing at all. Uh, and we can all sing, we can all make music. Yeah. Sure. I think everyone should learn to play or you know make noises if they can. Yeah, totally. That is That right there is the tragedy of recorded music right? Is that it was, it was the death of participatory music, right? Like it used to be that like, if you went to a pub, you were all singing pub songs, right? And, or, you know, back then everyone was going to church and they were singing in church. And that is, you know, actually participating in music is so much less a part of so many people's lives these days, right? Like it's a, it became professionalized and there's this sense of like, oh, you know, you have to be a professional musician in order to be a participant. And that's, it's a shame. Everyone, everyone should, should be involved in music. So another topic I'm curious to get your thoughts on is GitHub's Copilot. It was recently oh. announced. I'm sure people listening are familiar with it. It's pretty, kind of big news. Uh, but just want to give a quick summary and I'd love to hear what you think about it as a productivity tool and also any possible issues with it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I have coherent thoughts about it. Um, I haven't tried it out myself. Uh, I just saw a whole lot of tweets go by when it went out. Um, 
I don't know. What are your thoughts about it? Huh. So I, there are, I guess, two, two types of thoughts. Uh, one is I believe in general, I don't think AI is going to take over the world. I think it's more likely we'll cooperate. And this is a great example of that, that over mm-hmm. time, we'll simply become more efficient and more effective as people because we'll have AI kind of holding our hands and making us more productive. And this to me is the perfect example where you won't be able to be, go from being a non-programmer to an amazing programmer with this tool. But if you know how to program, you'll then be maybe one and a half times faster, some percentage faster because the code's kind of there and you can choose from it. It's kind of stack overflow on, uh, you know, on steroids, right? Instead of copying mm-hmm. and pasting, it's just there for you. Um, the flip side is, as a programmer, I'm always trying to write the least code possible, right? I find these tools are great at writing more code, but I'm trying to remove code. Uh, and I think that's where Flutter really excels. Right? For our company, we have far less code because of Flutter, right? Hmm. We're from having a web code base, a JavaScript, you know, a, a JavaScript code base, a Java code base, and uh, Objective-C. Um, and so now to have one dark code base, we're far better off. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting observation. Yeah. And then licensing is, is interesting also that there are concerns because uh, we have issues all the time. Our, right, our code was open source. We actually just recently changed the source code available because mm-hmm. of licensing problems. And so I'd be concerned. I think that maybe isn't really maybe fully understood at this point, uh, but it's exciting and really cool. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Your point about wanting to write less code is, I think, a really good insight. Um, I do kind of fear that that this will just sort of exacerbate that ten, that trend of just kind of like, yeah, just you know, kind of vomit out the code as quickly as you can. And if it looks like most of the tests pass, kind of call it done and move on and not sort of thinking like, okay, well, is this, you know, the, you know, the cleanest, most elegant way I can implement this, you know, do I really understand what the code's doing? Um, And, you know, from one perspective, that's, you know, that's 100% fine, right? Like if your goal is to just, you know, provide end user value as quickly as you can, and it's like, yeah, just get the code out there, you know, be productive, get moving quickly. Um, And I, you know, that's definitely reasonable. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe because I'm too much of a purist or I love programming too much. Um, the thought of working that way kind of makes me sad. You know, it's like, I, you know, I love code bases that, that were clearly made with love and that were tended carefully, you know? Um, and I'm always a little suspicious of tools that kind of make it too easy to add new code and don't necessarily make it easier to sort of understand the code you have or refactor it or simplify it. I don't know. Maybe I'm too much of a, maybe I'm too artisanal in my, my taste in programming. I think that's a great trait. I, th- I think it's critical. I, th- I, I think that's what distinguishes our company made from others that we, we do it out of love that we're really, mm-hmm. we, you know, we, you know, we're a very small team. It's all open source or source, it's all source available. But right, but we, I, you know, I live with the code. I'm not hired just to build a product and then I go away. I write, you write the code. It's my code. I have to deal with it. Uh, yeah. Which is, is the best way, right? It has to be that way. Otherwise, the code quality will always suffer unless it's developer themselves have to deal with the problems. Yeah. You know, it, my experience though is it kind of depends on the lifetime of a code base, right? You know, so, um, you know, you and I are, you know, the kind of people where we want to, you know, build a code base that we love and then reside in it for a really long period of time. And over that long lifetime, it, it makes economic sense to spend a lot of time refactoring, keeping it clean and stuff like that, because all that's going to get amortized out across that longer lifetime. But, you know, I also used to be a game programmer and a lot of times it's like you spend a year writing a game, you ship it on disc and you never touch that code again. Right. And it's like, at that point, it's like, how beautiful should it be? Right. Like what really, what really is the incentive there? Like if it, if the game works and it's, and you're not going to touch it again, who cares if it's garbage, right? Like who cares if the code is ugly, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not going to be maintained in the first place. Um, 
So maybe there's, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, it's kind of your programming style has to, you know, change to accommodate the, the reality of that code base's lifetime. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm sure a lot of people listening are maybe new developers. Do you have advice you'd give to someone just starting out? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, I, I get, uh, because, you know, because of my second book, and I, I wrote another book before that on game programming, um, I get email from people, you know, saying like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm trying to get into programming. Like, what is your advice? And, uh, man, it's hard, right? Um, you know, when I was learning to program, you know, I was lucky to have a computer and there was no web. And, you know, the all of my challenges were how do I get enough information to be able to make progress at all. Um, and these days, you know, the primary challenge is the exact opposite, right? It's like they, they are just completely overwhelmed with choice and information and it's impossible to know where to start and it's impossible to know which decisions are the right ones. You know, it's like, okay, I want to learn to program, which language should I pick? And they will immediately get a hundred answers from different people all saying, well, you should pick the language I love the most. Right. And then it's like, now they, they don't know how to make progress on that. Right. So it's total, just like analysis paralysis. Um, so the, the world that new programmers are in now is, is super different from like how I learned to program. So I probably don't have good advice um, beyond, you know, try to just pick one thing and stick with it for a while so that you don't get overwhelmed. Um, but aside from that, I don't know. I'm glad I, I'm glad I learned then. It would be hard to learn now. I feel that way about being a kid. I'm, I feel like I'm glad to be an adult now. I feel it'd be hard to be a kid yeah. these days. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's super weird being a parent, you know, and raising kids in an era of tablets and, you know, infinite media is super different from like, you know, when, when you and I were kids, right? Like, you know, we used to be bored and being bored is great because it is a forcing function for, you know, creativity and initiative. And in the absence of that forcing function, it's really effortful to, to, to learn those things, you know? Definitely. Uh, cool. It's so nice talking. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Uh, no, I, I got nothing. It's great talking to you. It's a pleasure. Uh, Bob, thank you for your taking, taking your time to, to speak and to record the episode and for all your efforts. Again, I really meant what I said at the beginning. Um, you've just this great, calm, rational voice in the community. That's because you don't see me venting, right? We all, but... listen, we all vent sometimes, <laughs> but at the same time, I think you make great efforts to, to be very rational and reasonable. I, I think, for example, pushing for safety and then getting it, getting it shipped is an amazing accomplishment. I uh, can't imagine the efforts that took. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it's also, you know, it's a huge push from the entire Dart team, right? It's like a, a ton of people that did a, just a fantastic job of like getting aligned on it and um, figuring out all sorts of loose ends that the language team didn't think about. And like, it was, it was just really amazing seeing how everyone just did a great job of coming together and actually making it happen. You know, there's this magical process of, you know, I remember all the discussions early on of like, if we do null safety, you know, how could it work? And it's sort of being, you know, sort of described in the hypothetical. And then, you know, there comes a point where it's no longer a hypothetical and it is a thing that we are doing. And watching that sort of social reality get created by the team surrounding us is this really cool sort of experience of like, oh, this is a thing now. It used to not be a thing, but now it's a thing and it became real. And it became real because like the team around us made it real. Pretty amazing. I remember years ago when it was early initially announced, it just seemed like this monumental task. Yeah. Uh, and it, right. And now it's shipped. Now it's out. Now we're using it. It's so wonderful that it is out the door <laughs> that I don't have to be migrating any more tests to null safety. Yeah, I'm sure. But now we're all waiting for the next feature. So no pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's always more features.
thank you so much again. And thanks for listening. Uh, till next time. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Hopefully we get to see each other in person at a future Dark conference at some point. That'd be really nice. Okay. All right. Take care. We'll talk soon. See you. Stream is a maker of enterprise-grade developer tools that help product and engineering teams solve two common problems at scale, in-app chat and social activity feeds. With Stream, developers can integrate any messaging or feed experience into their app in a fraction of the time it would take to build these features from scratch. The Flutter SDK makes it easy for developers to add chat to their applications quickly. Using either the UI kit or core SDKs, the process is as simple as adding an API key and creating a few widgets. Stream integrates seamlessly with Flutter, meaning developers can customize every aspect of the SDK and watch the changes come to life with a hot reload. Go to getstream.io slash widgets to learn more.